Hear the word of the Lord. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as, as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he cleansed their heart through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burning, burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. My name's Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. If you're visiting with us, uh, we are working our way through the book of Acts. And uh, the text before us this morning records one of the biggest and earliest controversies in the church. Uh, church has been around for a handful of years at this point, get, getting some steam, some momentum, and we see this first kind of big conflict happening. Uh, I, I believe this story, uh, it gives us a warning. There's something... In here for us, maybe you're like, here I am visiting church, and they said the C word. You know the C word? Circumcision. Awkward, right? What could this possibly have to do with me? Um, well, I've, I think this text not only warns us uh, about what can happen in a church, but it also equips us to handle the temptation to drift. Uh, maybe you've read leadership books that talk about mission drift. Maybe you've been at an organization that... You know, you started out making smoothies and 10 years you're a deli with a video game arcade and you're like, how did we get here? Uh, maybe you look around at a church like ours and uh, it can be a little bit overwhelming, um, especially if you're new and you, you try to figure out where am I gonna get involved or how can I get plugged in and you find that there's a thousand different things going on. Uh, when there's so much going on, when one of the things I love about Sojourn is it's a little bit simplistic, but if we see it in the Bible, we try to do it. If we see that the scriptures say this is what Christians do, we try to do that. So we're not a mission church. We're not a discipleship church. We're not an evangelism church. We're not a small group church. Like we're, we're trying to be all of that. We're trying to hold it all together because we see it all being held together in the scriptures. But that can make it really tough to figure out how to find a place. And, and what's more so, if you, if you try for a while, you can find yourself asking questions like, what are we even doing here? Um, or what is the point of all of this? Why do we do all of these different things? Uh, in other words, it's easy to drift. Um, it's easy to lose sight of why we exist. 
And this text provides us the antidote to our drifting, and, and I think it does so by showing us the clarifying power of mission. Um, and let me show you what I mean as we walk through this story. So verse one gives us the context and the crisis going on in this church. It says, well, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria. Some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, so Paul had spent probably about a year in Antioch um, making disciples, evangelizing, fruitful ministry, great stuff happening, and uh, along come some other men. Um, and did you see why they came? Just tuck this in your pocket here for a minute as we go through the service. Uh, it says they came to teach other Christians, right? They come to talk to Christians, some new information about what the Christians had been missing out on. And this group of people, maybe, maybe not these specific men, but there's this group of people that make a big deal out of the law of Moses and circumcision. You'll, you'll read about them throughout the New Testament called the circumcision party, which is kind of an oxymoron if you ask me. You know, like, just think about that a strange name for them, um, but they're going around to all of these churches and all of these Christians trying to tell them that there's something essentially lacking in their faith. Essentially, they're saying, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. You're not a Christian if you haven't been circumcised. Uh, and you know, the text shows us Paul getting incensed over this. Uh, and Paul, I don't think Paul was all that concerned about circumcision. He, he was concerned about the nature of the gospel. And to be real clear what we're talking about this morning, notice it says, what must you do to be saved? What must you do to be considered a Christian? And, and listen, if you do the work, you are not saved. Um, if you do the work, it is not a rescue. It's like asking someone who's drowning to do CPR before they can get on the boat. You got, you got to perform CPR on yourself. It's, it's totally antithetical to the gospel. We could say things like you helped yourself get better or you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, but you cannot be saved if you're the one doing the work. It's a totally foreign notion to what the gospel is. Uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul recaps what happens here in Antioch because something else is happening in another church. And this is how he describes the problem that he was dealing with here in Acts 15. He says, I saw they were not following the truth of the gospel message. They were teaching something that's totally foreign to the gospel. This is what you must do in order to be considered a Christian. So why is this worth our time today? Shouldn't this be something we skip? Like no circumcision parties and sojourn as far as I know. Uh, no one's making a big deal about this. Um, well, in, in the last month, just think about the last month. Think about everything that's gone on in our church think about everything that's been going on in our country. And uh, how often have you heard some version of this statement? Uh, I don't know how anyone could call themselves a Christian and, and then fill in the blank. Uh, this morning, um, I'm going to get the Pope here for a second. I saw the Pope, Francis himself. He tweeted, I don't know how anyone could call themselves a Christian and not welcome refugees. This is a big deal, right? Lots of people talking about this. Um, here's, just leave that up there, yeah. Here's some other ways that I've heard, just in the last four weeks, here's the ways I've heard or read this question being answered by people in our church and by Christians across the country. I don't know how you could call yourself a Christian and be a homosexual. 
I don't know how you could call yourself a Christian and vote for Donald Trump. I don't know how you could call yourself a Christian and be pro-choice. I don't know how you could call yourself a Christian and support immigration laws. How could anyone call themselves a Christian and actually say they miss Obama? How could anyone call themselves a Christian and join that women's march last week? Do you need more examples? We don't have a circumcision party. Maybe we have a political party. We have all of these rules, all of these sets of beliefs that will define this is what you must do to call yourself a Christian. And listen to me now. And if you have a problem with this, this could be a good indication that this will be a hard place for you to be a part of as a church. This is the position this church will stand and die on. This is the position that is required for salvation as far as we're concerned. It's the position that says Jesus is Lord. When we try to make salvation contingent upon anything else, we destroy the gospel. We, we completely undermine it. And if, if all you're hearing right now is, are you saying that these things are okay? I want you to see that you've got that problem living inside of you too. When we say you have to do these things to be a Christian, one of the first things we do is write off people. We write people out of God's story. Why? Because we've reduced the gospel to a set of beliefs or behaviors that we think are necessary to be part of the kingdom of God. Well, maybe you say Jesus is Lord, but how could you possibly think this too? You're not a real Christian then. And if you're not a real Christian, you're not worth my time. Or if, if you've committed one of the whatever, one of our favorite sins, isn't it interesting that we'll say things like, how can you, are you saying that you can be homosexual and a Christian? But you know what question I've never heard? I've never had someone come up to me after a sermon and say, are you saying you can be greedy and a Christian? Are you saying that you can be a glutton and a Christian? We have this very small group of sins that we prefer weren't present amongst us. And so we very carefully but I think very tangibly write all kinds of people out of God's story. What do you mean by that? I mean, we don't talk to them or we act like it's not possible that they could be Christians. A, a sure sign of a church that, uh, that is on its way to death is when salvation becomes more about the behavior of Christians than the souls of the lost. When the church becomes far more interested in the behaviors, beliefs, activities of those who are already confessing Christ than all of those people out there who, know, who don't know Jesus when we become ingrown and incestuous, just looking around at one another, trying to evaluate who's doing it right. All the while, there's, there's people far from the Lord out there that we've written out of God's story. Paul's concern in this text is for people, not traditions, not his own reputation, not for platforms, but for people, uh, people who need Jesus. And that's why Paul was always around people who didn't think like him. I could probably go on another 50 examples of stuff I've been seeing or hearing people say. How can you be a Christian and blank? The question I want us answering this morning, or at least wrestling with, is who is it easy for you to write out of God's story? Who is it easy for you to say, well, I'll let somebody else talk to that person? Or, yeah, I guess, like, we're all Christians, right? So did you know everyone in New Albany is a Christian? It's an amazing thing that I found out. Everyone's a Christian because they've been to church at least three times. And so we're Christians. 
We're just good people here, just nice, good people. And so we won't say things like, well, I hope they don't come to our church, right? We won't say that, but who would it make you uncomfortable if they sat down next to you right now? They come in late, so we all stare at them, right? Oh my gosh, church started half an hour ago. And then you, of all people, they sit down next to you. Who would it be that ruffles your feathers, that bothers you? Who is it easy for you to hate, to dismiss, to critique, and judge? And I'll, I'll tell you, there's lots. I mean, we could get out the big guns and I could try to offend everybody tonight, have a church reduction strategy and see, you know, maybe not so much here, but like space is a little tight in the 11 a.m., you know? Uh, but I'll tell you, our church has a long, long, long way to go in learning how to talk about politics. Um, this is one of the, like, it's been a hard week for me for a number of reasons. Um, but what's, what's been so heartbreaking for me is that the meanest people on my social media feeds right now are Christians, both left and right. I wish I could say it's just those Republicans, but it's so funny. I can see all these people on the left being like, these filth and foul people, filth, foul, sons of, sons of you know what's, how could they be so hateful? And it's like, hello, you know? And then the people on the right are like, no, we're going to tell an entire kind of person that you're not welcome in this country out of love, you know? Make you stay stuck in an airport in England for six weeks because I don't feel safe here in Indiana. So take a moment and consider what do you functionally believe someone must do to be saved? And again, we're all Christians, right? We're all in church. So Jesus, right? That's the answer. You just got to believe in Jesus to be saved. But what I mean by functionally is, so when the rubber meets the road, who do you look at and say, how could that person possibly call themselves a Christian? What is that for you? To flip it around, um, is your view of the gospel, I'm gonna cry, is, the view, is your view of the gospel big enough for people who think abortion is okay? That's one of the big ones in the church. Is, is your view of the gospel, is the gospel big enough for you so that even people who want to marry someone of the same sex could be saved? Is it big enough, your view of the gospel, is it big enough for people who abuse the welfare system? Is it big enough for socialists? Is it big enough for libertarians? Is it big enough for the private school family and the homeschool family? Now, I'm not saying all of these issues are the same. I'm not saying all of these debates are on equal footing. What I am saying is that these are the issues I see us dividing over. These are all variations of the same song. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but make sure you do this too. You have to believe in Jesus and be circumcised and follow the law of Moses if you want to be saved. The controversy didn't go away overnight here in the early church. And if you've noticed, if I haven't got you yet, come to me afterwards and I'll find another way to show you that. Like all of us are doing this, you guys. All of us have something 
that we're using to divide from people or that we hold up as like the litmus test of true Christianity. You're not really a Christian until you've read John Calvin. And then on the other side, they say, you're not really a Christian until you've read Henry Nouwen. And some of you guys are like, who? And it's like, oh man, I'll pray for you, right? Maybe one day you'll ascend to that level. So they couldn't solve the controversy, so Paul and Barnabas get sent to HQ, which I think is hilarious. Like, we're gonna go up and talk to the men about it or whatever, you know, like, we're gonna go settle this. And this became the major question the apostles had to deal with, the first big church controversy. What must we do to be saved? And here's what they said. He, that's God, made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we're all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. All of us are saved the same way. The undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. It's so wonderful that God saved so many people out of this legalistic uh, version of Judaism because they had tried following the rules. They, they had 600 plus rules and they tried following them. And do you see what Peter said? He's like, why are you gonna make them try to do stuff that we couldn't even do? Why in the world would we make them follow the law of Moses when we couldn't follow the law of Moses? In other words, he's saying, why are you making this all about behaviors when you couldn't behave right either? They knew it and we often forget it. No one is saved through rule following. And if our salvation was dependent on rule following, no one would be saved. What? I'm gonna say that again. I'm gonna slow it down a little bit. No one is saved through rule following. And if our salvation was dependent on rule following, then no one would be saved because you cannot follow the rules. And if you doubt this, or if, that, if you just got like a twinge of being offended, just take the 10 commandments, right? There's 10 of them. You could memorize them in an hour. Take the 10 commandments and see if you can get through a morning without breaking them. One, give me four hours. I'll let you sleep until eight. If you've got kids, I'll let you sleep until six, right? <laughs> and my, my point is, is it, it takes an honest person, I think less than 10 hours to see that they can't keep the 10 commandments. Can you go 10 hours without lying? Can you go 10 hours without being jealous? Can you go 10 hours without wanting what your neighbor has? Can you go 10 hours without loving something other than God? We are saved as a free gift of God's love for us in Christ. We don't submit to a long list of rules because Jesus fulfilled all of the rules perfectly. We don't live in fear of punishment because Jesus absorbed our punishment completely. We don't live in fear of the future because Jesus is risen and he will raise us too. And according to the scriptures, the good news of the gospel is that when your faith is in Christ, everything that's true about Jesus is true of you, period. The question of your behaviors are over. Why? Because Jesus behaved perfectly. And when God looks at you, he sees the behavior of his son. This is the good news. Jesus saves you from first to last, period. What do you have to do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. Yeah, but what about, nope, you've lost it already. What do you have to do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. Are you saying you can be a Christian and fill in the blank? <laughs> Turn it around. What's the sin that you like? Can you believe in Christian or can you be a Christian and 
have unresolved bitterness with your wife? Uh-oh. Can, can you be a Christian and live in anxiety about what's gonna happen to your children? This message changed the world. Do you realize that? The message that even the Gentiles can be saved, that through faith in Christ, we can be reconciled to God. It changed the world and it can change our world too. You realize with the size of our church and the smallness of New Albany, that y'all, we could really change this city. We, we could really change what's normal for Christianity here in the city. We could change the morality of the city. We could change the business practices of this city. It's not beyond us. People far less educated, with far less strategy and resources, did far more. So think about what this means. If this gospel is true, if the gospel that the scriptures teach and that Sojourn preaches is true, what would this mean? Uh, First, perhaps I don't need to say it again, but first, anyone can be saved. And by anyone, I mean anyone. Anyone can come to Christ. Anyone can experience change and renewal. If becoming a Christian were dependent on our performance or behaviors, there would be a very short list of people who could come to Jesus. The gospel would only be good news for those who can cut it. The good news is no one but Jesus could cut it, and he has done it already. Think about this. If anyone can be saved, then no one is excluded from God's story. No one has been written off. There is no kind of person that has been written out of God's story. This means that we boldly, confidently share the gospel with all kinds of people. And it's rooted from this deep confidence. There is no kind of person that Jesus cannot save. Hallelujah. Amen. There is no kind of person Jesus cannot save. Can you imagine, can you imagine, and maybe some of you can, the pressure and the anxiety if salvation was up to you? Can you imagine all of the hand-wringing, all of the worrying? Did I say it right? Did I go to the right kind of person? Maybe I wasted my time. But if anyone can be saved, then we can share the gospel with anyone. There are no lost causes. There are no people who are too far gone. And if all of that's true, who in your life might need to know this? Who in your life might hear this as good news? When you look out at your neighborhood or our city, who is least likely to come to church? Who are the people you least expect to come to church? And maybe those are precisely the kinds of people God is inviting us to go and share this good news. Anyone can be saved. The confidence you should take in this Christian is unbelievable. There are no kinds of people that God will not save. I think another big implication of this is that if God saves, then we can be patient. We get growing in Christ and being saved so convoluted. Um, And I think many of us live with a very idealized version of Christianity that I think is just simply unrealistic and is rooted in the, oh, I'm gonna stick to my notes here. It's rooted in poor interpretations of the scriptures. Uh, 
We have a long list of what makes someone a Christian. You must do this, and you must do this, and you must do this, and you must do this. And then we expect that as soon as someone becomes a Christian on day one, they will do all of these things. All of these things will be present in them. And now, on a side note, uh, the gospel assumes change, okay? Uh, I don't think someone can come to Jesus and not be different on the other side. So don't, don't leave here being like, well, he says everybody can do anything. It doesn't matter. Just say whatever. I'm saying... The gospel assumes change, but the gospel does not expect total change on day one. What does, what does the Bible call someone when they first become a Christian? A baby. What? A baby. You remember what, he, what Jesus said to Nicodemus? In the, the dead of night, Nicodemus all scared. Jesus said, hey, man, you got to be born again. Become like a little baby again. And all over the scripture said, if you come to, Christ, if you come to me, you'll be a baby again. Now, we intuitively get that you should treat a baby differently than your 44-year-old brother. We get that. Uh, if, if you went and visited a friend in the hospital who just had, had a baby, and the dad's sitting there, like, berating his two-day-old because the two-day-old two doesn't know how to do calculus yet, we would say, that dude has lost his mind. There's no way, why in the world? He's two days old, man. The church in Galatia fell under a similar spell that I think is bewitching us, as the scriptures would say. Watch what Paul says, and this is in Galatians 3. Who has bewitched you? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Paul sees this, they've fallen under a spell. They've been deceived, so he steers them back. Have you forgotten about the Spirit of God? Have you forgotten how your faith started? Do you really think you're gonna do this on your own? He corrects them, reminds them, and calls them back. The same thing happens at the church in Antioch. They write this beautiful letter to them affirming the, the uh, unbelievable simplicity of the gospel. Believe in Jesus. That's all you need to do to be saved. Paul goes back and delivers this letter, and we read at the end of chapter 15 how he spends his time there. It says that Paul and Barnabas, this is in verse 25, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. These people who had gone off the rails, believing in circumcision and the law of Moses, Paul didn't come back and say, hey, we're canceling services until you all figure it out, or I'm moving on to a new church. I just can't handle you people who don't do it right. He slows down. He says, hey, guys, let's open up the Bible. I'm gonna spend some time with you guys. I'm gonna teach you. I'm gonna correct you. I'm gonna be in relationship with you. I'm gonna be, in other words, he was incredibly patient with them. They knew that it takes the Spirit of God plus time for people to change. So they kept teaching. They kept preaching. They kept investing in them, trusting in the Spirit. And I, So first off, I think this means us Christians need to stop asking the impossible of people. And here's what I mean by that. If it requires the Spirit of God to change, we must stop expecting people without the Spirit to change. Do you see that? If, if this deep soul of the posture of our hearts to love the word of God and to live holy, blameless lives, if the spirit of God is required for that, how foolish of us to expect people without the spirit of God to live that way. And it only sets us up for frustration and anger and bitterness and will totally alienate that person from the Christian life. 
Spiritual children, please listen to me now. Spiritual children, just like biological children, take time to develop. It's a process. It's a journey. And we don't give up on them when they make mistakes. Well, what if they fill in the blank? What if they fall into heresy? What if they, what if they become alcoholics after they're a Christian? You know how many pastors that happens to? Well, you're not a Christian anymore unless you're sober. Really? Good parents don't bail on their kids when their kids screw up. And neither does the church. Now, in the same breath, I feel like I got to preface all this stuff because I get the emails after sermons like this. Um, now, we don't encourage a 35-year-old who acts like a four-year-old in the church. You know what I mean? Unless they're on medication and like there's something not right, then whatever. But I'm saying like a normal adult who's 35-year-old and wants to play video games all day and whatever. I'm working on my beanie baby business on eBay, dad. You know, like we don't allow that. We press into that. We address that. And the same is true in our faith. The author, though you should be teachers by now, I got to go back and teach you the basics again. You know, it's not okay to still be a child in the faith after 5, 10, 15 years of following Christ. But most of us are impatient and want change faster than is possible. That sounds like a lack of faith. No, that sounds like how God designed people to work. It's not a lack of faith if I expect my son to not be able to throw a curveball until he's seven or eight. It's not a lack of faith. It's just reasonable. He's three years old. A Christian who's been a Christian for 15 or 25 or 30 years ought to have a greater depth of faith a greater insight into scriptures, a a greater ability to trust the Lord and serve him than someone who's been a Christian for three years. Does that mean that the person who's a Christian for three years is no good or isn't? No, it just means they've been a Christian for three years. And ultimately, this brings us back to the original issue that we began the sermon with. How do we keep from being a church that's that's just real busy? or that just has a lot going on? How do we become a church that doesn't drift into this whatever, these endless speculations about theology or what it takes to be this or to that. How do we hold on to our first love as the book of Revelation warns us against? And there's lots that I think could be said here, but I think that maybe the simplest one, the one that I've, I've felt really impressed by the Lord to share um, is we, we press back against this by receiving the clarifying power of mission. Um, so let's talk about these men who came down from Antioch. Take that thing I told you to put in your back pocket, take it out and put it up front and you think about it. Um, compare these guys who came down to Antioch to Paul. What are they doing? They're going around looking for Christians to give like the new inside scoop to. Um, they're looking for Christians to clarify. It's kind of like the guy, the seminary student who wants to go find the Bible church out in the country and correct all of their problems theologically, you know? And if you guys don't know that guy, you are lucky, right? The 23-year-old who shows up to community group is like, "Uh, I'd like to meet with the pastor and tell him about everything that's wrong with this church. It's like, man, six weeks into seminary, two months out of undergrad. I'm so glad you've got this figured out. I've been here for 15 years, you know, like the arrogance, but whatever. Paul is going to places where Christians don't exist yet. He's evangelizing new disciples. He's raising them up. He's sending people out to start churches, whereas these men from Antioch are going to existing churches and putting a new burden on these people. Here's the part that Paul didn't explain to you. Like, 
What a weird way to spend your time. Hey, I'm glad y'all are worshiping and everything. I'm gonna meet with all the men after the service, talk about something you guys have been missing for a while. You know, like, can you imagine the way they were spending their time? But eh, regardless, I guess I think that's funnier than you guys do. Just try to imagine those conversations. Whatever, for whatever reason, it could have been like real well-intentioned out of a genuine love for Christ, but for whatever reason, these men have traded concern for the lost for critique of Christians. Do you see that? They could have gone to any number of places, but where do they go? To the place where they think the Christians have got it wrong. Where does Paul go? To the places where Christians don't exist yet. Instead of joining Jesus in his mission to the ends of the earth, instead of joining Jesus in his work of making all things new, they're going to soil that's already been tilled. They didn't go to Antioch to convert new believers, but rather to re-educate Christians. Some of us will be called. Uh, some of us are equipped to help Christians deep in their faith. Um, I'm not saying that the mission of God means you can only go to places where there are no Christians. But just the question that this has forced me to ask myself um, is do you spend more time evaluating the behaviors of Christians or participating in God's mission to the lost? I see a lot of people who want to spend a lot of time agonizing over unclear parts of the scriptures. Did you know there's parts in the Bible where we're just not really sure what it's saying? And there's different interpretations. I see a lot of people agonizing over this. And I think it's a really clever way to keep from following Christ. Because until I can figure out, <laughs> oh, I'm going to offend somebody now. Until I can figure out what's really going on with baptism, I'm not going to talk to anybody about Jesus. Because what if I baptize him wrong? Ah! Right? That's all over the place, you guys. I'm not going to join the mission of God until I really know where I stand with the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues in particular. Because I grew up in a church with speaking in tongues and those people were crazy or whatever. You see what I mean? But what happens? What happens when you're on the mission field? What happens when bullets start flying by your head? There's a lot of things you stop caring about. I'm not saying that theology isn't important. I'm not saying that baptism isn't important. I'm not saying that any of these things aren't important. But so many of us get so caught up in things that aren't as important as the gospel. And it's just a clever way that we've come to to justify our not following Christ and joining him in his work of making all things new. And Paul will later say the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Or in other places, it's like, you may baptize perfectly right, you may speak in tongues of angels, but if you don't love, you're a resounding gong. Imagine someone standing up here and every time they spoke, just a cymbal crashed. Sometimes I want to go into old fundy churches and stand in the back and just gong them, you know? When there's 12 people and everyone's mad at everybody and everyone's mean and we're going to picket funerals and all this kind of, really, y'all? When you're on the sidelines, it's easy to get caught up in theological minutia. When you're on the sidelines, it's easy to become a critic of the church. But if, if you want to stay near the heart of God, you must join his mission. And his mission is bigger than sharing the gospel. 
His mission is making all things new. So before you hear me and get all guilt-tripped about how you have never, whatever, hear me. The mission of God is his people being sent out to the world to cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea, to make all things new, to experience the fullness of the presence of Christ in us, to be transformed. Like, it's a big mission, you guys. It's a big mission and has room for all kinds of gifts, all kinds of skills, all kinds of desires. And what, what I hope you hear me saying is the concerns of the front line are few. When you are on the front line of that mission, it's incredibly clarifying. And there's things you'll be interested in. There's things that you'll want to figure out. But you won't be so worried that the person across from you in the foxhole over is an Armenian or whatever. When, you, when your focus is on sharing Christ, on making disciples, on making the world a more beautiful place, more like the kingdom of God, lots of